0: Our scripture passage is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, on page 1012 in the Blue Bibles. Uh, James 4, 1 through 12, page 1012. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know? that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Thank you so much, Adam, for reading. And it's uh, good to see each of you this morning. Uh, I'm very glad that you joined us here for worship. And if I could give a, a plug for next week's adult education, we're, we're talking about the history of evangelicalism. The, the word evangelical um, has a meaning in contemporary political discourse that isn't necessarily what the word has meant historically, and I think it, it, is, it is what it has meant historically is very much worth reclaiming. So I hope that you can join us next Sunday at 9.30 for that. It will be, I hope, helpful and beneficial. What God is saying to us in this passage is, is pretty straightforward. It's about why we fight with each other and what to do about it. One day this past week, I was heading back home from work on the, on the blue line, and along the way, I think when we got to the Chicago Avenue station, the driver came on the intercom and said that he had been told of a fire or the smell of a fire or something like that. It was, it was kind of vague. But what it meant was that we all had to get off the train, and CTA workers came and, had, and checked things out. And nothing was actually the matter. There wasn't any fire. I'm guessing the passenger, a passenger had smelled something funky and contacted the driver and it set off the safety procedures. But as we're standing on the platform, waiting to get back on the train, which is maybe 10 or 15 minutes long, I looked down a ways and there was a man whom I'm pretty sure was, was homeless and probably had had some mental illnesses, and at one point, he yelled at another passenger with a bag to see if he had any, any jumper cables in, um, in there in his bag to, to jump start the train, which I think was a joke and a, a pretty funny one, I thought. But <laughs> at another point, an older lady was walking down the length of the platform toward the stairs. And right before she passes in front of this man, he puts some kind of object wrapped in. Aluminum foil on the ground in her path, blocking her way. It was not blocking her way, but in her way. It was about the the size and shape of a of a of a husk of corn, but who knows what it actually was. But he puts it on the ground in front of this lady, and she looks at him in astonishment, and steps over it, and then yells back, "That was dumb." So he grabs it back, and a minute later, another person comes walking by, and he, he does the same thing again. He, he puts it right in front of this person. But this time, she was on her phone. I don't, I don't think she even noticed that he had done it. And all this time, I, I'm watching from a distance and wondering if, if he's going to escalate this strange behavior. And, and if he does, are, are the people around him going to have to do something? Or will I have to go and do something? And thankfully, it never came to that. He walked away. We were able to Get back on the train and get moving again. But I, but I thought about it afterwards. What was behind all that? Sure, he's probably suffering from some psychiatric problems, but, but where did that, that strange display of anger and aggression really come from? What was he angry at? Who was he angry at? Was he afraid of fire? Was, did, did getting off the train force him to wake up when he couldn't sleep the night before because he doesn't have anywhere to sleep the night before? Or did the, did the lady walking by him remind him of all the other people in his life who never really cared about him, always just kind of walked by him? I, I have no idea. What I do know? is that all of us struggle with anger. All of us have conflict. All of us have relational tension. And a good bit of what we do to each other can look from the outside, every bit as unreasonable and counterproductive as that man placing aluminum foil there in front of people. There are reasons for that. It goes deep. It goes to the depths of our fears and desires, but as deep as it goes, the mercy and grace of God goes deeper. So why do you fight and what to do about it? Well, let's pray together and ask God's help so that we can understand what's going on in our own hearts and find a way forward. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you that quarrels and fights are a presence in our lives more often than we would care to admit it. And even our best and healthiest relationships can be marred by deep disagreement and mistrust and misunderstanding. And even the people who love us most can hurt us the most. And we, in turn, can save our cruelest words, our harshest condemnation for the people we love the most. We need to change. We, we want to change. But we don't have the power to change ourselves. You do. You give more grace. Your grace is sufficient. So help us to receive this transforming grace with the, the kind of genuine humility and repentance that you call us to here in these verses. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So why you fight and what to do about it. If you're using the ESV Bible, which is what we read from earlier, you'll notice that the editors of the Bible have labeled this section warning against worldliness. And James certainly mentions worldliness, which we'll look at in a moment, but worldliness doesn't seem to really capture the flavor of this passage, does it? It's, it's more about what our conflicts are rooted in and how God helps us, how he changes us. And then at the end, he returns to a practical warning about how we treat each other. So we'll look at it this way. Where the problem really lies, how God helps, and then a step in the right direction. So where the problem really lies, how God helps, and then a step in the right direction. So first of all where the problem really lies. When we get angry and we fight and we condemn, or among some members of my household, when we body slam and go all mortal combat on each other, why? Where's it coming from? And remember, the the Bible does say that it's very possible for anger to be good. Uh, Anger is just Displeasure at what is wrong. That's all it means. And when you are displeased at what is truly wrong, what is, what is unjust or unfair or cruel, and that moves you to act in redemptive ways to make it right, you're using your anger in the way God intends you to use it. It's, it's how Jesus himself used his anger. He was displeased at what, is, what was wrong, and he moved to make it right, even at infinite cost, personal cost to himself by, by giving up his life. Anger can be good. But the situation that James is describing here is not that kind of anger, but it probably is the kind of anger that you're most familiar with. In fact, James doesn't actually use the word anger here, but he describes that anger when it's unleashed on each other. Read that with me, starting in verse 1. This is where the problem really lies. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. So James is writing to this, to this church, and if you've been with us for the past few months, you've probably picked up on the fact that, that this church has plenty of problems. And one of them is that they're fighting with each other. They're, they're quarreling. The, the, the language here is, is militaristic. They're at war with each other. And I think it's very interesting that we have no idea what they're warring about. James doesn't tell us. Uh, are they having the stereotypical church fight, you know, arguing over the color of the carpet? Uh, are, they, are, they, are they fighting about the church budget because we know that passions can, can run high when money's involved? Is the kids' ministry squabbling with the adult ed ministry because they're both competing for the same limited meeting space? Did someone from one prominent family slight someone from the other prominent family? Or is it something darker, like like racial tension, or class division, or or predatory abusive leadership? We, we, We just have no idea. James doesn't say. Which is important for us to notice, because what James does not do is to step in and try to resolve this fight. He's not interested in settling this dispute, or these disputes. What he is interested in is why they're disputing. And it's because... Their passions are at war within themselves. James uses several key words here in these first few verses. Passions, desires, coveting, all these words get at what we want. So why do we fight with each other? Why are we angry at each other and snapping at each other? Because, James says, inside of us, in our hearts, there's a war going on our passions, our desires, what we want is raging. That's James' main point here in the, this, this first section, and then he explains what he means in verses 2 and 3. Look, look there with me. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are four sentences there, and James groups them, groups them in pairs. Here's the first pair. Your desires are unfulfilled, so you murder, and what you covet is unfulfilled, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, you don't get what you want, so boom. Some scholars argue that when James says murder, he's being very literal. I don't think that's quite the case, but it's not much better. It's the kind of anger and hostility that if you took away any fear of getting into trouble, and if you took away your own conscience, it would end in literal murder. You're fighting with each other because you're not getting what you want. And, James says, there's a reason you're not getting what you want is the second pair. You're not asking for it, the end of verse two says, but then verse three, you are asking for it. You're just asking for it in the wrong way. In other words, there could be two problems with your asking. One is that you're not doing it, which is to say that you do not trust God with what you most deeply want. Just think for a moment with, about what you, about what you most want. I want to be safe, and secure. I want to be loved and accepted, but I don't believe that God will give me what I want, so I've got to get it for myself. So the purpose of my life then becomes a striving to fulfill what I want, and the moment you get in the way of what I want, we fight. That's one problem with your asking. Here's the other. That you want the wrong thing. You ask, but you do it wrongly, James says, to spend on your passions. What you want is something pointed inwards. I want to be comfortable. I want to be pleased. I want to be powerful. In that case, the problem with what I want is that it's entirely about me. A few days ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop working on this sermon, and, and there were these three guys a few tables down from me talking business. They, they, they sounded like, like contractors or house flippers, something like that. I I was trying not to listen to them. But as they were finishing, they started talking about their wives. And they were saying the most terrible things and repeating to each other what they had apparently told their wives, how if their wives didn't give them what they wanted, they'd go looking somewhere else. It, It was terrible. They were speaking as if what I want... Is my right. And what I want matters infinitely more than what you could ever want. There's a problem with what we want. There's a problem with how we, we try to get what we want. We don't trust God and we want the wrong things. Our, our our passions are at war. And when my warring passions intersect with your warring passions, what happens? We fight. Let me give you an example. Elizabeth George is an English mystery novelist. She, she writes uh, police procedurals. And one of her characters in her first book is an extremely angry, prickly detective. Who's got, she's got one last chance to not blow it and destroy her career. Because she, she verbally abuses every person she works with. She's been demoted from detective back to walking the beat, and she gets one last chance to be a detective if she can keep, only she can keep herself in check. And the story goes on, and, and at the end of it, we finally learn why she's so angry. Because years ago, her little brother had died of cancer in the hospital, but their parents never visited him there. They, they, they couldn't face it. They left him there to die alone, and only she was the one who visited him every day except the day he actually died, because she couldn't be there for that. And it embittered her, it destroyed her, and it it shaped what she wanted. She wanted revenge on her parents, she wanted justice, she wanted her pain and her guilt to go somewhere, to go away. So she attacked everyone who got close to her as if they were the cause of her pain. Her passions, her desires, even as Sympathetic as they were, warped into these relational boxing gloves. Think about the most contentious relationship you have right now. Maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's with a child or a parent or a co-worker, an employer, an employee. But but think about the relationship that's the most contentious for you right now. What James is saying is go deep. Don't stay on the surface with the, you know, she said that or or he did that and that's why I can't stand him. No, Go go deeper. What is it that you want? What is it that you're not getting? What is it that you don't trust God to give you? What is it that that you want that's that's radically about yourself? What do you want? That's where the problem lies. So what does God say about all this? How does he help us? he, He helps us with... His grace. But first, to get to this grace, James takes us first to his jealousy. And the way he gets to his jealousy is through our infidelity. So verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever makes wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, your relational conflicts with other people on a horizontal level, reflects another relational conflict on a vertical level with God himself. These warring passions, which come out as fights and quarrels, is really a case of spiritual infidelity. One scholar puts it this way, that, that this, this fighting and this quarreling is, is worldly behavior. It's how the world works. Fighting and conflict because of your desires. This is how the world works. It's worldly. It's friendship with the world. Which means that in those moments, your allegiance is to the world rather than to God. It's an issue of loyalty or disloyalty. And look how God responds to this disloyalty. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, if you're trying to think of What verse James is quoting there, and you're coming up blank, uh, that's because he's not quoting from any particular verse. Uh, It's more of a a theme from the Bible, that that God is a jealous God. His people belong to him. They they matter to him. He's grieved by this worldliness, by their spiritual infidelity. So if our relational conflicts amount to spiritual infidelity against a God who is jealous over us, what does he do? Does he reject us? Does he cast us away? No. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. This is my favorite sentence in the whole book. Maybe the whole Bible. But he gives more grace. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Martin Luther, the, the Protestant reformer, did not like the book of James. Because he felt that there was too much of what You had to do, and Luther really fought he fought really hard to get us to see that ultimately Christianity is not about what you about what you do, but I wonder if he was really listening at this point. He he gives more grace. Maybe you're sunk right now in the most bitter, discouraging, hopeless conflict. But it gives more grace. Or maybe for you, conflict's not the major theme, but, but, but failure is, or, or suffering, or struggle. There is no difficulty that you can face when this will not be true. He gives more grace. Grace is a gift that you can't earn. That's, that's why it's grace. But it's a gift that God gives you with delight. He gives more grace. So how do you get this grace? How do you, how, how do you receive it? If, if God delights to give me more grace, what should my posture be to receive what he gives me? Humility. The second half of verse 6 through verse 10 describes what real humility looks like. Then it starts with, in verse 6 with a theme verse of sorts from the Old Testament. This is Proverbs 3.34. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're proud, you, you rely on yourself. You, you trust yourself. You don't need God. You don't want God. And God's against that person, but He gives grace to the humble, which means that He gives grace to the person who needs help and who, the person who knows He needs help and is willing to receive that help. Which, let's be honest, isn't something that we always want to do. We want to be strong. We want to be self-reliant. We want to be be people. We want other people to need our help. We don't want people to, to help us. But the person who needs help is exactly the kind of person whom God delights to help. Benjamin Franklin said that God helps those who help themselves, which is very American. But James says God helps those who can't help themselves, but who do Humble themselves. So what does that really mean? What, what, what does it really look like to humble yourself? Well, verses 7 through 10 paint us a picture of humility. You notice how verse 7 says, submit yourselves to God. And verse 10 says something very similar. Humble yourself before the Lord. So submission and humility frames this section here. And inside this frame, James shows us what this really looks like. And he gives three sets of commands that fill out this picture of humility. The first is about who you resist and who you draw near to. So starting at the, in the second part of verse 7, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you remember from our passage last week in chapter 3, verse 15, James said that, that the kind of attitude that's full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that the, the kinds of desires that are that plague when we're at each other's throats and we're, we're calling our way to the top, that, that those desires, he said in chapter 3, are demonic. In other words, your relational warfare is also spiritual warfare, The the dog-eat-dog way we can be with each other is from the devil. So, So resist him. Resist that. And he'll flee from you. Which is to say that by the power of God, this is a battle that you can actually win. And as you resist the devil, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. This is faith. Have you ever felt, after a particularly nasty argument... Feeling kind of dirty, or anything that leaves you with with shame, how that how that how that kind of feels like it sticks on you and you you can't get it off. What do, you, what do you do with that dirtiness? Does it make you want to hide? How about instead of hiding, draw near to God. Go to Him in faith. Go to Him in humility. Go to Him in brokenness, and He draws near to you. He's like the Father. Of the prodigal son who's just come back after getting himself really dirty. And he's full of shame. And he comes to his father. And his father runs to him. That's, that's what your father does. He doesn't cast away. He doesn't reject. He draws near. The next set of phrases shows what true repentance looks like. Not not just feeling bad for what you've done, not not just feeling guilty, but it's it's true repentance. It's a full rejection of that old way as you cast yourself upon the mercy of God. It's it's true repentance. The first set of phrases uses language from the priesthood and the second set uses language from the prophets. Here's the priestly language, second part of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's it's like the priest purifying himself before his, his duties. And notice how it's both external and internal. Cleanse your hands. That's, that's external. It's what people can see and hear. So humbling yourself means to repent of what you do and say. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. It goes to the internal. It's purify your hearts. That's your motivations. your motivations your desires, what you want, or your fears, what you don't want, your your idolatries, your unbelief. James has said that your outward actions, even your conflicts with other people, are rooted in what really drives you in your heart. So true repentance isn't just, um, I, I promise I'm not going to say those hurtful words again because I can see how they've hurt you. That's a good start. But it's not just changing what I say and do. its Instead, it's honestly wrestling with and asking God's help to change my idolatrous fears and desires that made me say those hurtful words. It's external and internal. The next set of phrases comes from the emotional language of the prophets. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, on first glance, this feels kind of harsh. You know, maybe a bit over the top. But remember, this is prophetic language, and in the prophets, this kind of laughter and joy isn't the kind of laughter like you know children playing with a grandparent, or the, or the joy of a of a good conversation with a friend. But it's it's a laughter and a joy which is exclusively selfish and self centered. Uh, my family watched the Last Jedi the other night. We're, we're getting caught up. And think of the joy and the laughter of the city that's gotten rich off of war profiteering and the exportation of children. They're having a great time. Lots of laughter and joy. When my happiness, my pleasure, becomes something that benefits me but it hurts or distances other people, that's what James says you need to turn into mourning and gloom. Repent of that. So, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, repenting of both the external and the internal, and weeping over my most selfish desires. That's humility. So, James finishes this picture of humility with this last call for humility and a reminder of what God does for the humble. Verse 10 Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you, which is another way to say he gives more grace. When you're most broken, when you're most needy, when you're, most, when, you're, when you're at your weakest and you look to God in faith, he lifts you up, he exalts you, he gives you more grace. That's how he helps. So where the problem really lies, how God helps. One more point, much more briefly. A step in the right direction. James has spent a lot of time Digging, he, He's uncovering why we do the things that we do. There's the problems in your heart, so God has to do a work of, of grace in your heart, and which requires humility and repentance of the heart. And then it gets practical again. Uh, yeah, for, uh, for me, I don't know for you, but for me, after I've, I've wrestled with what's going on in my heart, and it's really helpful for me to have some concrete, small step of obedience, something really practical for me to do so that I can put my, my, my heart change into action. And James gives us that here in these last verses. If, if you know that your conflicts with each other start starts with the desires of your heart, and if you know that God gives grace to the humble, what do you do next? What's one practical step in the right direction? Here's what James says, starting in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Or don't slander one another. You've got these fights and quarrels, and what what seems to happen is that you use words in those moments to cut down your opponent. I see this every day. Here are two people who are fighting and quarreling over something, usually a toy, because their passions are at war within themselves, the, the, the desire, that they desire that toy like it is the key to all happiness. They, they fear losing all meaning and significance and joy in life by losing this toy. And they might end up using their fists, but they'll almost certainly use their words. You're such a, whatever the latest insult they've heard from their friends is. And of course, adults do this all the time too. One step in the right direction is to be done with that. To be done with the fighting that leads to speaking evil. Why? What's the real problem there? What's, what's, what's the real problem with slander? The problem is, is that it puts you in the place of God. He goes on in verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Here's how the logic's working. If you slander your brother, you're breaking God's law. And if you're breaking his law, you're rejecting it as an authority over your life. You've made yourself the one who has authority. You're the judge. But that's not where you're supposed to be. You don't actually have that authority. So verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. What that means is that beneath evil speech, beneath slander, beneath using your words to win and cut down, there's a functional belief that says, I am really God. And that's a delusional belief. So I've got these quarrels and fights, and I've wrestled with the warring passions and desires of my heart, and I've humbled myself before God, what do I do next? Where do I go next? What does my, my first step in the right direction look like? I watch out for what I say, which reveals what I actually believe about God and what I believe about myself. That's where I start. Even in my most contentious relationships, the ones where my emotions are prone to go Defcon 5 pretty quickly. I can watch what I say about the other person. That's the first place to start. So where the problem really lies, how God helps and a step in the right direction. Why we fight and what to do about it. My grandmother died about 16 years ago. And and she loved me and my brother very deeply. We loved her very deeply. She was emotionally volatile. not, Not towards me, but towards most everyone else. Other family members think that she had some mental illness, maybe, maybe bipolar disorder. Um, I don't know. But the last few years of her life were wracked by early-onset Alzheimer's, which is just a terrible disease. And I can only remember one day when I was the object of her pain and anger. I came over after school to check in on her, and as soon as I walked in the door she starts crying and accusing. She was saying, no one loves her. No one cares for her. You know how I responded? I got angry. I got self-defensive. I got self-righteous. And what I basically said was, we've, got, we've all got our problems. I've got my problems. So get over yourself. Was, that was my basic point. Not my best moment. But what was happening there? My grandmother wanted something. She wanted to be loved. She wanted to be accepted. And I wanted something. I wanted an easy, comfortable life. I wanted a grandmother without Alzheimer's. I wanted a life without the stress of taking care of a grandmother with Alzheimer's. I wanted a life without needy, weak people around me. That's what I wanted. So we fought and quarreled because of what we wanted. And I wish I knew then what James is saying in these words, that the biggest problem wasn't what was going on in her, but what was going on in me. That there was something profoundly selfish with what I wanted, my passions and desires at war with themselves. And I wish I knew. I wish I really believed That God gives more grace. Even in that sad and difficult moment, He gives more grace. And the way to receive that grace is to put away my self defensiveness, to put away my self pity, and humble myself before Him. And then, very practically, instead of those words of harshness and condemnation, I could have used words of compassion and comfort. I didn't know that, or I didn't really believe that. That's why we fought. That's why you fight. That's why I still fight, because I'm, I'm still a work in progress. But He gives more grace. He always gives more grace. Because at every moment for me, every moment for you, the gospel is true. Jesus is alive. You are forgiven. The Spirit is in you. There is always more grace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God of all grace and compassion pour out your